so good that we can come today to God's word. We, we, we live in a world where there are a lot of needs and people look around and wonder what our greatest needs are. And may I just say, uh, to hear the word of God, to love the word of God, and then to, to obey it. Here is indeed our greatest need. This morning, of course, we come right about this middle section of the whole story of, of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, working our way through week by week, this telling of the story of Jesus. And we are right at the place where Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Uh, the first part of the book, a uh, big part of it up in Galilee, that region. And now he has, as Luke would say, he has set his face toward Jerusalem. And so right now in the text we're going to be in today, he is, he is in his final season in his home area. And th- that, that understanding of the moment in which today's text appears is critically important to understand it. And I, I say that because you know this, um, if you've ever had those moments with your kids when it's really, really a big deal, like they're leaving for college and it's your last conversation before they walk out the door. Uh, that kind of a moment. What do you say? Um, you usually don't say, and by the way, how about those mariners? You, you hopefully say something a little more cogent. And there are moments when you speak with, with a little more intent. And so I think that's taking place in this text. Jesus is setting his face to Jerusalem, and he's got some things to say. What do you say? And we're going to take a look at that today. I want to pray for us, and we will roll up our sleeves and get into today's text. All right? Join me, please, then, as we pray. Our Father, how good it is that you would meet us here by the Spirit of God in the preaching of your word. How good do you have placed in our hands the Bible? We think of generations gone before, before uh, the printing press, and even today in different parts of the world where a printed copy of the Bible is hard to come by or uh, received only at great risk, and how privileged we are. So this morning, I pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear, as the Bible says, hearts to receive, and then to love what is here, and to love you as the God who has given us this text. So focus our hearts on Christ today. Grip us with your truth. Enable us today to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, I give you a few elements of review and invite you to take a look at those. And then you come to the part called today's text, where I just say a word about the setting, uh, Jesus' final recorded words in Mark in this area. And this morning, I want to begin by just going back a bit, and I'm going to start reading at chapter 9, verse 30, though our preaching text really begins at verse 33, okay? But I, I, I want that that prior paragraph, because I think it gives context to what follows. So Mark 9, I'm going to read 30 to 50. And then if you see the notes there, you see there are three headings we want to look at. And I'll say more about that in just a minute. But let's hear the word of God at this time. All right. So Mark 9, verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, 
What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than for two with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Oh, boy. Uh, You remember a week or so ago, I mentioned to you that there was chatter around the office about who got to preach which text. It wasn't about this text. All right? Because, of course, this latter paragraph has been the subject of a lot of conversation down through the years. And uh, I, I think it's a fascinating text Cutting off things and, and my goodness sakes, this, whoa, there have been people talk about this. In fact, when people discuss and actually um, cast aspersions at Christianity, this is one of the texts they often use. Like, seriously, people. Okay, we get to talk about that today. What, what was Jesus after? Was he just kind of like being this crazy Galilean teacher? Or was he dead serious with an important point? And of course, I would argue for that. I I don't think he was saying, I'm just going to mess everybody up for generations to come. No, I thought, I think he was saying, listen carefully. I'm going to use an important figure of speech to say something that matters. I hope you get it. Well, of course, that's the third paragraph. If you look at your sermon notes, you see there are three different movements, I think, in this text, all stemming from verses 30 to 32. But the first two are about humility. I think that's the theme of those first two stories. And then the third one I have under the heading of costly discipleship 
requires an eternal perspective. I think that's the point of that big and, and uh, kind of controversial paragraph. I think that's the idea. He's talking about discipleship here, and the cross is looming large for him as he heads toward Jerusalem. But I want to work through these, of course, in that order, uh, 33 to 37. These are not long uh, stories in and of themselves, and we'll, we'll move along in such a way that I hope I have uh, maybe the majority of the time on that third area where I think more of the questions come as it relates to what in the world is going on. But you come then to verses 33 to 37, and this is this wonderful moment. Jesus is, uh, of course, in verse 30, Galilee, passed through Galilee. Now he's come to Capernaum. Uh, I have referred you many times to your, your maps, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, because all of this makes sense if you look at it geographically. Okay, uh, Galilee's up north in Israel. Sea of, Gal- uh, sea of Galilee is right up there in that center of, of that northern region. Jordan River uh, wanders uh, down toward Jerusalem in the south. Judea is down there. And Jesus is on his way that direction. He's moving south. Jerusalem is down there where he will suffer and die on the cross for our sins. And so he's, he's finishing up his time up north. Galilee, the region. Now he's come to Capernaum. Uh, that's the place where Peter's house would be. I find it interesting, of course, uh, people point this out. In verse 33, there's, if you get grammar, sorry, there's a definite article on the house. It doesn't say a house, like somebody's random house. The house. It's specific. And uh, of course, if you study the Gospels, it would seem that Peter's house was there, which may easily have been Jesus home away from home, so to speak, when he was in that region. So he's making his If indeed that's true, Jesus is making his last stop at a house that he's called home for quite a while. Uh, Some of you have memories of that. I do. Um, The last time I was at the house in which I was raised, after my my dad had died and my mom was in another facility, and I was the guy to clean out the house, get it ready, sell it. And I remember the last walkthrough, thinking, okay, it's been good. And off you go. And I, I wonder for Jesus, as he comes now to Capernaum for the last time, heading south where he's going to suffer and die, I wonder what all was on his mind. And of course, I, that's speculation, I realize. But these, Jesus is God in the flesh, the flesh. He's a human being, God in a human form. So I, I, I just wonder about these things. What were you discussing on the way? That big question then uh, is is made the more significant by the preceding paragraph that we read. Jesus, Jesus now has made his second announcement of his suffering and death. You'll remember, as we've worked through the study in Mark, that in the early part of the book, Jesus doesn't really talk about his purpose of suffering and death, his mission on earth. But in this middle section, chapters 9 and 10, you find he does it three times as he begins to move from miracles and healing people and teaching. He begins to move now with his, his eyes set on Jerusalem, redemption to come. Jesus three times says, hey, fellas, Here's what the future looks like. And he says it really plainly. And you remember, I'm reminding us of these things. It's so important in the text uh, that the disciples had a Messiah complex, if you will, not about themselves, 
but about Jesus. The idea that Messiah was going to take over the place and, and, uh, and throw out the Romans and sit on a throne in Jerusalem. They, they read the Old Testament. They read about a kingdom age. And they were thinking, hey, that's now. They didn't see Messiah suffering on the cross, rising from the dead, and then leaving in the whole church age. Didn't see it. So here they are hearing this suffering and dying and then rising. They don't understand. And now on the, the journey, they're walking. It's not a long distance, but uh, a number of hours at least. Who's the greatest? Arguing. Who would ever think like that? These fickle and vain young boys, right? When Jesus rises from the dead and he sits on the throne in Jerusalem, maybe it went like this. I think I'd make a really amazing prime minister. You would not. You can't even tie your own sandals. Hey, hey, hey. I'll get help with that. You, you know what you're going to be? You're going to be the guy opening the door. I am not going to be opening the door. And off they go. I'm not really sure what it looked like. Arguing, though, has an intensity to it. Which of them is the greatest? And I find it so, so, okay, fun when Jesus says, so, what were you chatting about? And it's just like you when you ask your kids who did something. Silence. No one knows. We look around, there are no guilty parties. Huh? No one saw anything. Silence. And of course, I gave you a reference here. This is similar to a moment back in chapter 3 when Jesus has healed uh, the man with the withered hand. And he's, or he's in this conversation about that. And he looks around and sees these religious rulers who refuse to answer a very important question, is it lawful to do good on Sabbath? And it says there, they were silent. They were silent. And Jesus looked at them in that setting with anger, grieved at their hardness of hearts. So very similarly here, he says, what were you talking about? They were silent. Wow. Now, verse 35, watch, just watch some of these details in the text. Jesus sat down, called the 12. Okay, that, that just could sound very innocuous, but here's the thing. Seated was the official teach, uh, teaching position for a rabbi. That's what rabbis did. They, when they were going to say something important, rather than standing up at a wooden podium, uh, they're seated and the disciples sit at their feet. So you find this many times you'll, you, as you read the, the Gospels, Jesus is seated somewhere. That's not by accident that they're telling you that. This is a moment when Jesus takes a seat, the disciples sit around him. That means kind of like, hey, um, Listen up. I'm going to speak to you now with a, as, as a rabbi would, as a teacher, an authoritative teacher. So they recognize the setting. This is very common in that day. And he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And I, I reflect this in my title of this section, True Humility Defines God's Upside Down Kingdom. Uh, years ago, not that many years, but it seems like it, we used to sing the song, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Well, of course, it's based on this text and a similar text like it. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, it is upside down. And this is one of the places in this text where, you know, I think about this in a world of business and, and business books, and I, I love the term best practices, and the reality that, quite honestly, in the church, many of the things that in the world people call best practices need to be flipped. I find this so interesting. I've been saying sometimes, well, for this, you know, best practices call for, and I go, uh-huh, yeah, I know. Uh, this is the church of Jesus Christ. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, servant of all. 
fight to the top, claw to the top, get your name on whatever. Well, okay, not so much. Claw your way to the bottom. Claw your way to anonymity. Find a place to serve and don't demand to be noticed. You don't need a key to the executive washroom. By the way, we don't have one. Uh, uh, You're never going to get a Rolex watch for for service in in God's kingdom, at least this one, this part of it. Yeah, we really don't do that. Uh, Gift certificate to Dairy Queen, maybe, um, if you're lucky. But, But, you know, I don't know. That's not the way it is in God's kingdom. And so Jesus says, you know what, guys, rather than arguing about who can be the greatest, how about if you guys would have a little battle to see who could be the most anonymous and the servant of everybody? How about that? How about if you guys scratch and claw to say, no, I'll carry the bags instead of, uh, you know, let me advance. This is an upside down kingdom. Now, he's going to illustrate this, of course. Uh, he, he, he illustrates it by taking a child. Here's a little misunderstood section. He takes a child and of course, whose child he's, maybe he's in Peter's house. Whose kid is this? We often think in these settings where it's Jesus and the disciples that there would be 13 people in the room. And I think very often there were other people milling around Jesus, the disciples. And apparently in this case, I I, I'm guessing he didn't have to go out in the street and rustle up a kid. I suspect there, was, there were kids roaming around, maybe a couple of dogs and a chicken or two. And, you know, it's, it's somebody's first century house, man. So he takes a child. It's a tender moment. Takes him in his arms, which I take that to mean this child knows him and recognizes him as a safe person. Because you don't see kicking and screaming described in the text. Jesus can take this child in his arms and then teach again. This is a sermon illustration. Whoever receives one such child in my name, notice that's the action. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me is a welcoming of God himself. Now, if you look at my fifth bullet point, that's where I'm at on that first section of your sermon notes. Jesus doesn't so much encourage us to be like a child. Sometimes people read this and say, I think Jesus is encouraging childlike faith. This isn't the text where that would be the case. No, no. He's talking about who's going to welcome this child. Who's going to receive this child. Who's going to take the time to give attention to somebody who has no prestige or status. There are settings where people, if you, if you look at certain parties and receptions where there's a jockeying. Who can sit near the important people? We've got to make sure we shake hands with. We've got to posture ourselves near. Do you see that? It's Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. They're really important about here, around here. I've got to be sure to be noticed. You know what? This is a different kingdom. Whole different kingdom. Rather than having your eyes set on the person with status, Jesus says, well, you know, there are people with worldly status. And in my kingdom... Maybe you should pay attention to this little child and welcome them. Maybe you should find the one with the least status and spend time with him or her. The one who can't, can't do much good for you, uh, in, you know, in terms of reciprocating. And how about if you would invest there instead? Talk about an upside down kingdom. This is turning their whole argument on its head. I put here uh, on your notes, you see um, in that final section, a C pillar 288. That's a book. Okay, you remember uh, I mentioned when we begin our study, 
of Mark, I brought eight books that staff is using as resources. And every now and then, there's a section that I think is specifically important. This is a pillar commentary series, um, the, uh, the Pillar New Testament Commentary. Okay? It's a good series, uh, scholarly, but readable. And this is one of our key texts. And I noticed a little, little part here. I thought, now that's very interesting. So I'm reading, and I gave you the page number. Some of you, I think, maybe have bought some of these books. I don't know. But, but, but the, the writer, James Edwards, comments on this text. This is kind of interesting because the way we think about kids in our culture is different from the way the first century people thought about kids. For us, often kids are the center of the home. Whatever little Johnny wants or Susie wants, they get. I mean, it's all about you, right? All Our whole house is oriented around this little darling. Well, be that as it may, it wasn't like that in the first century. If I just may read a couple things here. He says this, societies with high infant mortality rates and great demand for human labor cannot afford to be sentimental about infants and youth. Isn't that interesting? He's pointing out here that in that day, with the high infant mortality rate, sometimes, and there have been cultures like this even today, where you don't really, dare I say, bond as deeply with your kids until they hit a certain age where it looks like they're going to stick around a while. Because so many of them die in those early years. And when you receive a new child, a new child enters your family, it's like, well, this one may or may not make it to five. You know, we'll do our best, but, you know. We'll see what happens. And just pointing out that there's a different way of looking at things. And he says here, of course, disciples are thus not to be like children, but to be like Jesus who embraces them, the least of these, who invests himself not in the ones who are going to earn him some kind of credit. So this is an upside down kingdom. And Jesus takes the time to point that out in the face of this argument. I'm going to move on then to that next section. This is a kind of a fun one too, but it's all about humility. It really is. When you come to verses 38 to 41, then John says, I think the same context there in the home as with this whole text, Jesus, or John says to them, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, this is kind of interesting. Short text, but if you look at your sermon notes, uh, I mentioned this is the only time Mark mentions John by himself. Well, that's kind of fun. You really don't find John quoted much speaking by himself. Well, here it is. Here's the moment. Uh, the, the sons of thunder, I say, strike again. Uh, James and John, of course, Peter, James, and John, who were just on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus not that long ago, but, but this is a moment. John, John now says, we saw this guy casting out demons. We tried to stop him. Thunds, sons of thunder, um, so-called by Jesus, that's James and John, thunderous men, they were, they were the uh, go big or go home people. You've heard of those guys, right? Go big or go home. That would have been James and John. And I give you another reference here. It's kind of interesting. Look up nine, uh, Luke 9, verse 54. It's in the same setting uh, just after this. G- Luke is telling this same moment when they're heading to Jerusalem. So it would appear just by the chronology Luke uses that the text we're looking at today in Mark uh, happens just prior to this other moment described in Luke. This is when they're heading to Jerusalem. So clearly right after this teaching, they're heading to Jerusalem. They stop at a Samaritan town to get lunch and the people there don't want to feed them. They don't want to sell them any food because they're Jewish people going up to Jerusalem. And John famously says, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven 
uh, let's, could, should we smoke them? Um, so he's not just saying a little rebuke. He's talking about lighting them up. Uh, go big or go home. This is John. So here he is prior to that statement, of course. We saw this other guy. We didn't even know who he was. Snap. He needs to knock it off. This would be like one of us going into Starbucks, finding a person sitting over there in a corner with somebody else with the Bible open, and you listen a little bit, and they're pointing him to Jesus, and you're going, hey, do you go to Sunset Bible Church? No. Well, stop it then. We have the corner on that market. Can you imagine how that would go? Like, wow, so Sunset Bible Church is, is like, what, the only game in town? The only people who know Jesus around here? It's us? I don't think we would. I hope we wouldn't. <laughs> but there's a certain, uh, well, we wouldn't do something exactly in that scenario. Sometimes we can end up thinking that those in our tribe have a corner on the truth. I mean, after all, we, we, we're here because we're a little more right than everybody else. Aren't we? Okay, stop that. <laughs> no, 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 not quite. So John, this is very practical. This is a very um, contemporary um, interaction, I think. John says he's not one of our tribe. He clearly can't be part of the truth. Now, I would hasten to point out, he's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. So clearly he's in the Jesus family. Okay? So this isn't saying... As some would say today, all religions are equal. That's not what's taking place in the text. The Bible is really clear. All religions aren't equal. Um, that's a whole discussion in itself, but we, that's easily demonstrable. Uh, all religions are not the same. In this case, here's somebody who's acting in the name of Jesus. And I, as you see on your sermon notes, there's a second uh, bullet point under this heading. Uh, you'll remember that Jesus has other followers than the 12. Uh, in another setting, Jesus sends out 70 and there are a whole pile of other people listed in the New Testament who were followers of Jesus, but they're not part of the 12. The 12 was a unique group who were called by Jesus to be his disciples, and then ultimately uh, a group that transitioned into that group called apostles, sometimes used both ways. But there's a unique group, but there are others who are followers of Jesus. And here's John looking around saying, hey, I don't, do we know him? He's casting out demons. Now, I, I wonder here a bit. Uh, it's, we're following this in chapter 9, of course, where these disciples had a little problem casting out demons, didn't they? Uh, and I wonder here if John's a little, little jealous because this other guy appears to be having success where he wasn't very good at it. it. It could be a little bit of that. Uh, we struggled with that. And here's this guy who appears to be making it work. So what's up with that? How could he? How could he? How, he we've got the mojo. Who's he think he is? I also find it, ah, uh, boy, you don't want to make too much about a single word, but it's interesting at least. John says he's not following, what's the word? Us. Wait, 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 hold on. John, we're not following. <laughs> Who are we following? Jesus. I, I, I think Jesus is the, is the right one to say here. He's not following you would have been a great way to express this. To, 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 to say us, kind of, I, I, has a sound to me like John is thinking like, you know, there's us, we're the good people. You know, you know Jesus, James, John. Wait a minute, Jesus, James, John. He isn't just one of the posse. No, he is Lord of all, King of kings, Lord of lords, Redeemer, Savior, headed to a cross. He's not following us? Oh, Lord. 
No, don't put my name on the banner. Don't put my name on the banner. How about Christ? He's not following you, maybe would be the concern. I can, I can forgive that. And Jesus says, here's his instruction, don't stop him. Don't stop him. That's not your job. Don't stop him. No one who does a mighty work in my, in my name, these are followers of Jesus, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Who's not uh, against us is for us. Give a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ. No, don't stop him. Don't stop him. Don't stop somebody else who's maybe a little different brand. I'll invite you to think about that a little bit later under responding to God's word. Um, sometimes people make way too big a deal about minor issues of doctrine. Um, I, I like minor issues of doctrine. I have opinions on a lot of minor issues of doctrine. But you have to think carefully about which ones are the minor ones, which ones are the bigger ones. And if you go to the wall for all, every minor issue of doctrine, guess who's going to be in the room at the end of that conversation? Just you. That's right, because you're the only one who completely agrees with you. Uh-huh. Yeah, you can get yourself very alone if you insist on every minor point of doctrine. I remember a conversation some years ago I was in when, uh, it's, it's a long story, but I'll give you one little snippet. Um, um, <laughs> a person said to me, isn't it your job as a pastor to make sure everybody in your congregation agrees with you on things? Wasn't that a great statement? Dead serious. And I, 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 of course, answered as you think. Of course not. No, I just preach the Bible. It's not my job to run around and make sure everybody agrees with me on everything. What do you, anyway, I restrained myself because it was the wrong, uh, it, it was a formal setting. It was the wrong setting for me to wax too eloquent. But I said, no, in fact, I don't think that's my job as a pastor to make sure everybody agrees with me on everything. I just preach the Bible and we'll let the spirit of God take it from there. But, but no, I don't think that's my job. Well, John apparently thought it was. Humility, I'm saying. Humility, I put it this way, isn't jealous of others' success. There's another tribe that seems to be doing quite well, this guy. Rather than being jealous of him, how about if you go hold his coat and get him a cup of water? How about that? Cheer him on. Stop by, pat him on the back and say, good job, young man. Keep going. How about that? Well, he's not quite our tribe. You know what? It's okay. Jesus will sort it out in the judgment day. Well, this is called humility. And Jesus is teaching these things on the way to the cross. So true humility defines God's upside down kingdom. You want to be great in God's kingdom? Serve. Don't fight your way to the top. Fight your way to the bottom, if indeed there is such a thing. True humility isn't jealous of other people's success. Then you come to this, this intriguing paragraph, verses 42 to 50. And I want to go here for these next and closing moments. Okay, this is a fascinating text. I want to start by talking about figures of speech in the Bible. Can I just give you a clue? Like every language and every book, there are figures of speech. We, we live in figures of speech constantly. We are, we are so um, steeped in our figures of speech that we don't even notice them. The people who notice them the most are others who are learning English language. And then they're, then they're stuck because we say all kinds of things. That, that are figures of speech. Some of us who speak in other cultural contexts have to work very hard to guard against American figures of speech because they don't always translate. Even if people are speaking English, they might not understand the figure of speech and we can rapidly find ourselves misunderstood. We say things and everybody knows what we mean. I'm drowning at work. 
Oh, you are. What a terrible thing. Shall I send a lifeguard? Well, no, it's a figure of speech. That person is such a couch potato. Well, it's a figure of speech. We know, we know what is meant by that. Parents say this. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times or however, pick a number. Did you really? And what would you do if your kid said, actually, mom, it's only been 968. You, you know what? You, you would have a word to say about a little smart mouth kid. You would say, you know what I meant. Because here in America, figures of speech are intended to be understood. We do this, dare I say, all the time. Yeah, well, not all the time. Okay, all right, figures of speech. I believe this text has some really critical ones, and I gave you a title for it. Uh, If you want to get technical, metaphoric hyperbole. Well, what does that mean? Well, metaphors, uh, these are metaphors in the text. Hyperbole is speaking with exaggeration to make a point, like the I've told you a thousand times. Well, you didn't really. I'm exaggerating to make a point. I think that that understanding is the key to all of this. Now, if you look at the text, I want, to, I want to highlight some repetition here, okay? So you'll notice in verse 42, the phrase, it would be better, shows again in 43, it is better for you. 45, it's better for you. And 47, it says it four times, it's better. So there's something being contrasted. Something is better than something else. Further, you find in verse 43, enter life. Verse 45, enter life. Verse 47, enter the kingdom of God. So those are pluses. Those are good things. And then as well, you have a reference to hell in verse 43. You find a reference to unquenchable fire. Well, right after that, that's rather striking. Thrown into hell, verse 45. And again in verse 47. So those are some repetition elements. Now, Looking at verse 42 that I think introduces this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble. I believe the reference here, as I put in your sermon notes here, that the the, the little ones Jesus speaks of are likely younger or weaker believers. Often people read this and think it's speaking primarily about children. Um, I, I don't think that's really the idea based on all kinds of other things Jesus would say. Paul would say it this way, um, my little children with whom I'm in labor again until Christ is formed in you. Uh, often the term little children is used not of those simply who are chronologically younger, uh, but, but those who are newer in faith, younger in faith. I think you could apply it to children, but don't limit it there. Whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him... If a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I want to show you something. We saw this last year in Israel. We were in Israel at your, uh, by your kindness in May, Kathy and I. This is a millstone. It's pretty big. There's no way I could move that. We saw that at, a, at, a, at a, one of the places of ruins, one of the many places of a lot of ruins. What you did with this, it would roll around a track. You'd put grain underneath it, and that thing would crush the grain. All right? You'd stick a, a, put a piece of, of wood through that hole, attach that wood to a, a mule or a donkey or some other kind of beast of burden who would move that thing, and it would roll then around this track. And as a farmer, you're putting your grain in there, and that's a, it's going to 
crush it for you. Knock off the husks, and then you can, you, can, you can get the usable part out. That's a millstone. Now, I have to ask the obvious. I mean, hyperbole, speaking a very, uh, with exaggeration, if Jesus said, let's take that, wrap it around your neck, and toss you into the sea, what's going to happen? Let me just say it this way, straight to the bottom. Don't even bother to dog paddle. There's no way you're going to make it. Jesus could have said a little fishing weight. This is fishing country, Capernaum. Uh, maybe if, if someone just tied a little fishing weight around your neck. Well, you know what? You could survive for a while with a little fishing weight around your neck if you're a good swimmer. But how about a millstone? He's speaking massive to make a point. It would be better for this than to this. And you'll see this contrast all the way through the text. This is better than, or this is worse than. And so here, this, this millstone, wow, Jesus, you didn't use a little rock. You went straight to something that's going to take me really fast straight down. It would be better for him. Now, he's not saying it would be a good thing. It'd be a good thing. He's saying it one is better than the other. I want to suggest to you that in all the contrasts that follow, Jesus is not contrasting a good thing with a bad thing. I don't think he is. I think he's contrasting an awful thing with an even worse. That's what's going on in the text. Jesus isn't commending, um, well, if you struggle with, with stealing, it'd be a wonderful thing to go cut your hand off. Verse 43, he's saying, having, a, having your hand cut off, that would be terrible. I would hate to see you go into life with a, without an arm. This would be really bad. But worse than that terrible thing would be for you to ignore Jesus Christ and end up in a place called hell. It's called unquenchable fire. Worse than that awful thing. We're not comparing a good and a bad. We're comparing and contrasting an awful thing with an even worse How terrible. Now, as to why I think this is metaphoric, I'll tell you in a minute. But again, verse 45, if your foot causes you to to sin, cut it off. Well, is this a good thing? Like, wow, this is great. Hop along someone's. No, it isn't a a wonderful thing. It's a terrible thing to to have happen. And Jesus says, but even worse. Even worse than you facing life without your hands, even worse than you facing life without your feet would be for you to end your life and not be reconciled with your creator. Even worse. You think that's bad, he's saying? Try this one. So for people who read this and go, Jesus is telling you to, he, no, he's not telling you to do this. He's saying, you think that's bad? It is. Try this. This is even worse. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes. Wow. It's better. Well, no, it's a, it's a terrible thing, but he's contrasting two bad options. Even worse though, he says, would be to end your life apart from Christ and be thrown into a place the Bible calls hell. Wow. Now, often we are asked as people who talk about the Bible, and this, this is a trap. Do, I mean, take my advice on this, please. People say to us, do you take the Bible literally? May I suggest never answer that question. Define it first. What do you mean by literally? Ask them this. When you speak to your kids, do you speak literally? Well, you don't. You never do. Well, okay, often don't. No, you, you use figures of speech all the time. When people say literally, then they're going to say, well, then you should be cutting off your hands and your arms. Uh, okay, that's not, uh, let's not be foolish here. 
I don't, it is, to say you take the Bible literally, if we, if we define it correctly, I'll end up saying yes. Because if you say no, it's all figurative. People say, well, then like heaven and hell are figurative too, right? It's like, no, no, I don't believe that. I will end up saying yes to literal once we define it. I, w- I would like to define literal as the way language is intended to be used. Okay? The way language is intended to be used. If, you mean, if that's what you mean by literally, the way language is intended to be used, then I will agree with your definition. The way language is intended to be used. In other words, recognizing figures of speech, but also recognizing that in the midst of figures of speech, there is stone-cold truth. That don't, don't you rationalize that away. So do I think there's a place the Bible calls hell? Yeah, I actually do. Jesus talked about it more than any other person in the Bible. Little known fact. You know, Jesus was all about love. Yes, he was. And he wanted to love every one of us so you don't go there. So, so Jesus talked a lot about hell. The real place? Yeah, I think it is. It's called here unquenchable fire. Wow. And he, he sets in the opposite of that, entering life. That's what you want to do. The kingdom of God, verse 47. So there's, there's two extremes, a, a good place and a bad place. I believe both are real. I don't think they're figurative. I think they're literal. I think there's a good place, the presence of God, a bad place, the Bible calls hell, or here, unquenchable fire. And this whole back and forth between cutting off. Now, if, if I may just say, you'll notice a couple of things Jesus doesn't say here, because he's making a point that would be a, still be obvious. If, you're, if, you're, if your mind causes you to sin... He didn't say that, did he? Because you can't say cut it off. It's better for you to, well, you're going to enter, you're going to enter something right now. If you go there, Jesus didn't use that as an example. He's making a point. Uh, Jesus regularly taught that our biggest problem isn't our hands and our feet and our mouth. What did he say? Our biggest problem is our heart. See, the mouth speaks from what fills the heart. My biggest problem isn't all those other body parts. It's my heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It isn't just my hands that need to be redeemed. It's my heart that I need Christ to change. So Jesus didn't say if you, if you long for things you shouldn't long for, cut your heart out. He, he didn't say that. You know, he used things that were making a point to say it's better. This is better than you think that's this is it's better to have this awful thing happen than for you to enter into this place called hell, unquenchable fire. So something far worse. Now, I want to head to those last couple of verses. Well, verse 48, where the worm doesn't die. What is this about fishing worms? No, these are not fishing worms. Uh, these are maggots. Sorry, last time you heard maggot in a sermon was when? Well, uh, that's the idea here. Uh, this is talking about death, and it's using an analogy for what we would call a place called hell, and it's straight out of Gehenna, and just a quick history lesson, it'll really just be that. Um, there, there, is a, there is a valley right next to Jerusalem. It's still there. Obviously, valleys don't move. The Valley of Hinnom which is right outside one of the walls of Jerusalem. There it is. You can go there today, and there's the Valley of Hinnom where, where child sacrifice and all kinds of nasty things happened in years gone by in the worship of false gods. And it was a terrible place. It was, you can read about this in the Old Testament. There are stories that are told of the Valley of Hinnom. That's where it was. A lot of bad stuff happened there. In years later, it became a garbage dump. 
Years later, it became a place that you threw your, you know, uh, the bodies of animals and things like that. Or, in fact, criminals who died and nobody wanted to claim their body, they kind of went out there too. Trash, often burning. So it became kind of this nasty, a scene of a nasty, smoke-filled, smelly, um, decaying uh, uh, fire here and there. It became a, a metaphor for like, you don't want to go there. You didn't go out there and have a picnic. Hey, honey, let's have a picnic today. You know, just overlook the valley of, of Hinnom. No, you didn't do that. Nasty, death, stench, fire. So people would hear this and go right there, Gehenna. Um, so their worm doesn't, now that was a place where, there, where those maggots never ran out, of, ran out of stuff to eat. So it's, it's painting hell as a place you don't want to go and a place that lasts forever. People struggle with that. Yes, I understand. I do. But that's the picture in the Bible. The fire is not quenched. It never goes out. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? What in the world is this? I believe, as I have on my final bullet point there, both of those are taken right out of temple worship. I think this is the key to this. Temple worship involves salt and fire. The sacrifice is completely consumed. Salt was part of many of the Levitical offerings you'll read about. Grain offerings and so on add salt. It spoke of permanence. It spoke of, of covenant. And fire spoke of consuming completely. Um, sacrifices did not get partially consumed on an altar, completely consumed. I, I think that's the idea. You're going to be a follower of me. That's why I put this whole section under discipleship and eternal perspective. There's a heaven to be gained and a hell to be avoided. And you need to know that, Jesus says, as he's on the way to the cross. You better pay attention to this. The stakes are extremely high. So I think he's calling people who are going to be his followers, disciples, to, to follow him with an eternal perspective. And for, for us, salt, covenant, permanence, yes, losing your saltiness. We would say today sodium chloride, table salt, as we would know it if you ever passed chemistry. It doesn't really lose its saltiness. You can keep your little bottle of kitchen salt for years. Uh, the salt back then, uh, largely taken from the Dead Sea or other type of deposits, wasn't like what you'd have today with a more, more stable compound. Um, back then it could get kind of nasty, and then you just threw it away because it didn't have any salt, uh, saltiness to it. And he's saying, don't let that be you. Don't lose what you have. No permanence. Salt should, uh, should maintain its, its saltiness. Make it permanent. It's like fire totally consumes. I think it's the language of the temple. Okay. That's a really quick answer on a bigger topic. I want to close by looking with you at that part called responding to God's word and just invite you to think about these things. Big discussion. These are very practical issues in the church of Jesus Christ. Who, who should be confronted and over what topics? What are the small things that you can let go? What are the big things culturally that must be addressed? What are the things that should, you should say, no, I can work with this, but this, no. And every church has to decide this, so does every believer. What are the things that you'd say, okay, uh, we're going to let that one. This, this gentleman, of course, casting out demons, wasn't one of the apostolic band. Must you, must you go after him for that? Some Christians get too stuck on going after people for the small things. Don't let that be you. And then, of course, Jesus says, don't let anything keep you from entering life. I think that's the big warning in the text. Uh, would you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer and head out. There's so much more in that text we could, we could chat about, but I think, I think that's good for, for today. 
Pray with me, if you would, please. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text. Thank you for how the disciples must have been sitting transfixed at Jesus' feet, listening and wondering what this was all about, what was to come. And so today, as we head out into a world, our Father, we are tempted as well to perhaps think of ourselves as more important than we ought. Oh, Father, help us to claw our way to the bottom. Help us to be servants of all. Help us to resist those things in our culture that tell us how to be great and instead to be great in your eyes to find your smile more valuable than all. So, Father, we thank you for your word today. Bless and keep your people as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.